the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, when you're sunbathing on Neptune's moon Triton, make sure to bring a towel and a nano broth of body fluid antifreeze because on Triton, everything means less than zero. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have part two of our two-part interview with the great Tim Powers, multiple World Fantasy Award winner, and really wonderful all-around storyteller and author of a new Bane edition of Earthquake Weather, an amazing contemporary fantasy novel set in a very magically weird California, which sort of sounds like regular California. So Tim Powers talks about that. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword, Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel. Now here's the news. Ho, 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 December is upon us, and of course, we got you covered for the holidays with shiny, sparkly, happy holiday new hardcovers and trade paperbacks. Put them under the tree, on the tree, in the e-reader, or in the delivery hatch of one of Santa's drones. First, there's a new entry in the Heirs of Alexandria series by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. This one is called All the Plagues of Hell. Hell breaks loose. Orcasy is loose. The snake god of plague has been awakened by Lucia del Mino. With the venomous magic of Orcasy at her command, Lucia plots to marry and then murder the usurper who now rules Milan, the condottiere Carlos Forza, known to friends and foes alike as the Wolf of the North. On his side, Sforza has only the skill and cunning of his physician, Francisco Turner. But will that be enough to save the wolf of the north? Out there in the countryside of northern Italy, Orcasi is uncoiling all the plagues of hell. Also new in December is A Star-Willed Sky by Brad R. Torgerson. The fate of humanity on the interstellar highway. Well over a millennia in the past, men and women fled Earth, escaping Armageddon. What they found, lost in some forgotten corner of the Milky Way galaxy, was the Waywork, an alien superhighway between a closed sphere of stars. Now the five star states, which rule all that's left of humanity, are poised on the brink of another terrible war. It's a clash of civilizations as the future of the human race hangs in the balance. All the Plagues of Hell by Eric Flint and Dave Freer and A Star-Willed Sky by Brad R. Torgerson are now available at booksellers everywhere. Get em, give em, and read em. This is part two of a two-part interview with Tim Powers discussing earthquake weather. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tony. Welcome back. Um, Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels Last Call and Declare. Hey, you were just up for a World Fantasy for the for the short story collection um, that w- you were a finalist in. But the Ellen Clages collection really was awfully good. I can't complain. Yeah. Well, you've been... Uh, you intermittently up for world fantasies several times right that's the yeah actually over 40 years quite a number of times uh they they distribute little lovecraft lapel pins to nominees and i've got a little bag full of those oh cool you know, uh, I think who is it? It's Lois Lois Bujold who makes a little necklace of the of the Hugo uh, pins that she has. Declare that novel also received the International Horror Guild Award. Your novel, uh, Tim's novel on Stranger Tides, um, was sold to Disney, and it was part of the Pirates of the Caribbean installment. It was based on the magic system of that book, and and a lot of the 
a lot of the feel of that book went into the movie as well, I think. Um, it's one of my, I love. Yeah. And they. Love uh, that novel. Yeah, they uh, bought that novel and it was sort of the basis of the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah. The novel being on Stranger Tides by Tim Powers. Um, Tim's book, The Anubis Gates, won, Gates won the uh, Philip K. Dick Award, and he won again with Dinner at Deviant's Palace. I really like that book as well. Um, well, I like them all, but <laughs> that's a, a science fiction one that's kind of cool. Yeah. Bain recently published Down and Out in Purgatory, The Collected Stories of Tim Powers, which was a World Fantasy Award finalist. Um, and that has all up to now of the stories that Tim has written, although I'm sure that it will soon not be the complete Tim Powers. Um, out last summer from Bain was a new edition of Expiration Date, which is part of the Fault Line trilogy. Um, and also out last summer was an all-new novel from Tim, Alternate Routes. Um, and we're going we're gonna to have a, a sequel to that coming soon. Um, as soon as you write it. <laughs> so, and, um, can't wait for that. But now at Booksellers Everywhere is, is a new Bane edition of Earthquake Weather, which is the finale of the Fault Line series and the sequel to Expiration Date. Maybe this allows us to bring in the uh, uh, Cochrane character, who is, um, is it... Um, Escapes with Janice Plumtree from this institution where Arm the the rather evil Armand Trout was um, trying to eat him up. And that he's connected to the um, Cochrane, uh, Scant Cochrane is connected to the um, to the other aspect of the of the ethos here, which is the that there are gods. Right, specifically Dionysus, Bacchus, um, because. Uh, I postulate that when they, in the French Revolution, they converted Notre Dame into, uh, I don't know, sort of a storage shed. And uh, the uh, phylloxera bugs wiped out the French vineyards. All the famous, you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy uh, were genuinely in danger of simply all dying out. And the cure was to import rootstocks from Louisiana. And so now, ever since about 1900, um, all the great French vineyards are working on Louisiana rootstocks. And I postulate in the book that Dionysus switched his allegiance to the Napa Valley. Um, by means of the mysterious Zinfandel vine. And uh, so, yeah, Dionysus is a fairly active god in the Napa Valley now, I postulate. And not altogether a good guy, which, in fact, in mythology, he was not altogether a good guy. He is, um, and Cochran is, um, is uh, gotten involved with a, f a woman who wanted to uh, get in touch with him in a real big way, right? And um, she, yeah, he, um, uh, a woman who was uh, a descendant of one of the old French uh, families in Bordeaux. Uh, has traveled to Napa Valley in California to try to uh, reestablish the link with Dionysus. And she marries our hero, Scott Cochran, because he has a mark on his hand of a, of a vine leaf, which he got as a child because when one time the grapevines in winter were being pruned back, he saw in a grape stump a face. And as the pruner's shears went out toward the, the stump, he instinctively put his hand out to block the shears from chopping the face, and the shears chopped his hand instead. 
And Dionysus took this as sort of an Androcles and the Lion event. And ever after that, Scott Crane was in a special status with Dionysus, uh, kind of a favored figure. And that's why his wife from Bordeaux wanted to marry him because she wanted to reestablish the union with the old god, though it doesn't yeah, work. He, he slowly sort of he comes to the realization that she was using his ass, and she's dead at the book's start. Um, and he's just, he's all broken up inside over that. I mean, he's, he's um, in a psychological breakdown. Yes, he had to return her ashes to the family in Bordeaux, and after that, on the way home in Paris, he has a possibly hallucination, possibly real encounter with a very primitive form of Dionysus, and he reacts in a weird way, uh, apparently insane, and back home... Uh, on the way back home in Los Angeles, he has another uh, psychological episode with Dionysus in which he uh, punches his fist through a window, and he winds up in Dr. Armentrout's um, mental hospital, too. And yeah. thus he meets Janice Plumtree. And so, uh, and believe it or not, we're still in chapter one. So <laughs> we're not, this is not spoiler material yet, <laughs> or it's not going to be. So, uh, so they escape uh, and they're on the run and they, uh, they wind up at Cootie's. Um, and, and here we, we meet Cootie from Exploration, who's a wonderful little boy who's now 14. Um, and he's settled in, he's got a new foster family. Um, and it, Sort of explain this this Santeria, whatever it is, establishment that his mother runs, and Testiculos de Leon. Yes, uh, his mother. Where everything was, costs forty nine cents. It's yes. Well, his his mother had been his foster mother had been a practicing psychiatrist who found that it was useful to have seances in her group meetings with her patients because the uh, pretense of calling up ghosts of one's dead loved ones could be therapeutic for her patients. But one time, accidentally, she triggered a real seance, and uh, ghosts appeared, patients died, she was discredited, charged with uh, involuntary manslaughter and became a fugitive. And because what she had done uh, qualified her as a real seance practitioner, uh, and because of her Hispanic heritage, uh, she found herself, like it or not, a practicing uh, a bruja, uh, a Hispanic. Uh, medium witch almost in effect and so to settle it she traveled to Mexico and got uh, what you might call ordained by a very old brujo down there and was given the name of her ministry which was Testiculos de Leon uh testicles of the lion. The names are always some sort of strength phrase. And she was given the uh, strict amount she would be permitted to charge for her supernatural services, which was 49 cents. Uh, wasn't up to her. It was dictated to her. And so she establishes a practice in Long Beach, southwest section of Los Angeles, uh, dealing with ghosts, uh, love spells, curses, and so forth. Uh, but she's restricted to charge only 49 cents for each um, transaction. And, and, of course, soon in the book, there are heavy calls on her 
uh, practice. Yeah. The, uh, a lot of her, at the beginning of the book, when the earthquake comes, um, a lot of the ghosts that are a certain sort of conduit of ghosts, they're always blown away. And a lot of her clients call and say that, that the haunted things have disappeared. Yes. Uh, in fact, on, uh, on the morning when Scott Crane is killed, it was fairly south of Los Angeles in Lucadia, uh, it's a big shock wave across the whole psychic landscape. The, the King of the West has been killed. Uh, a bunch of the sort of uh, provisional uh, figures, uh, the, those sort of animate ghosts, and uh, some clients of uh, Elizalde, Cootie's foster mother, abruptly die. And Cootie finds himself waking up with new handicaps and awarenesses because his qualification for Fisher Kinghood has suddenly become a live issue. He doesn't know why the strange ghost creatures have all dropped inert or why he suddenly has these expanded perceptions or why a weird truck pulls up in his driveway um, with Scott Crane's dead body in the back. Um, but, yeah, suddenly his sort of uh, peaceful uh, compromise with the supernatural world has become a live controversial issue. And Angelica Elizalde, his foster mother, finds that uh, she now needs to use her powers in a much more urgent and personal and life-and-death way. Sounds very good, actually, put like that. Yeah, and that is the because the 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 at issue in the book is who's going to be the next Fisher King, or is Scott Crane going to be somehow revived, and is it going to be a good person or a bad person yeah and uh the three candidates are dead scott crane reluctant cootie and the bad father of janice plumtree who currently is confined in her head but who wants out and he'd be perfectly willing to take his daughter oh yeah he he he's uh one of his plans is to assume the body of his daughter completely and uh, sort of pitch into the gutter uh, her uh, the personalities she already has. Um, and, of course, it involves uh, finding and consulting another person who had... Uh, very organic, uh, intrinsic connection with Dionysus, namely um, Mammy Pleasant, who was sort of the voodoo queen of San Francisco in, say, 1890 to 1906. And she was entirely, of course, a real historical person who did exist. And, of course, all the... Um, uh, biographical details I give her are are genuine. Um, she was another fascinating real historical character. There's another one uh, that that comes into. I'm trying to think of the that filmmaker uh, fellow you were talking about in expiration date. He comes back in somewhere somewhat in this one as well. The the guy that was died in the sea. Uh, he he was. Um, sort of defeated by uh, Thomas Edison many years ago and lost all his actual memories, and so he tends to take on the name of whatever district of Los Angeles he wakes up, regains alertness in. So at one point he's called Sherman Oaks, uh... I suppose there's somebody said if he came back female, he could be Beverly Hills. 
Um, but yeah, he um, he's Long John Beach in this one, I guess. Long John Beach, right? <laughs> uh, and and he um, was almost defeated in uh, expiration date, but uh, comes back out of one of his blank periods in earthquake weather and finds himself uh, allied with Dr. Armantrout. He's rather a nasty, nasty character. There is a lot of, um, a, of not just um, archetypes and and ghosts, but there's a lot of uh, cool pop culture um, and literature that you that that just gets mixed in with all of this in a, in a. It feels like. One of those sand sculptures where all the different colors of sand are twirling together, making some beautiful mosaic. Um, one of the stories that you use is Troilus and Cressida, the uh, Shakespearean play, the weird Shakespearean play. Um, um, I uh, I also referred to that in uh, Last Call. Um, at at one point, uh, the characters. Uh, if you drive through uh, one of the wedding chapels called the Troy and Cress Wedding Chapel and honk the horn, uh, make a loud noise, and uh, it has an effect on one of the characters who shows up later in um, Earthquake Weather. But ultimately, I got that from um, the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, there at, in one of the thousand rooms there's a pair of stained glass windows with lines from shakespeare worked into the glass and in one of them is uh wide unclasp the table of their thoughts which is from troilus and cressida and so i had to obviously investigate that and troilus and cressida um, if you read it with a paranoid squint, um, can seem to very clearly uh, refer to a woman being uh, betrothed to a ghost. Uh, it's not hard to read the play as if Troilus, in fact, is dead. Um, ha, I swear. Um and there are clues well, you, in you the play. you explain how that could be in the book. Yeah. yeah. And there's clues in the play that help, because Shakespeare always frequently ended um, a scene with a couplet, a rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter. And in at least one scene, a rhymed couplet appears, which appears to end the scene. But the scene proceeds a bit. And you think, okay, that was added on. <clears throat> Obviously, Shakespeare meant the scene to end with that couplet. This further few lines is put in there by somebody. And uh, so, yeah, Troilus and Cressida, uh, ha, I convinced myself, at least while I was writing it, that, uh, yes, this is relevant. This is uh, an instance of uh, exactly what you're talking about here, um, having to do with ghosts. Yeah, and in a way, yeah, Janice is being prepared for not a betrothal, but <laughs> having herself taken over by by a ghost. Yeah, and um, and then the other quote in the stained glass is from Richard III, and it also uh, is relevant to their situation. And of course, I say that. Uh, Sarah Winchester chose those passages for the stained glass because she herself was involved in all this, and uh, you know. Well, what are, explain the Winchester? Explain the Winchester house to us. Uh. Well, Sarah Winchester was the widow of um, one of the Winchesters of repeating rifle fame. And uh, so when her husband died, she found herself with infinite wealth. 
and in San Jose began building. She started with a sort of modest little house, but began adding on to it uh, over many years. And it, the work never stopped. Day and night, 24 hours a day, there were carpenters, uh, you know, putting up walls and new roofs and uh, extending new wings of the place. And since she was infinitely wealthy, it's all top-notch work. It's gorgeous. Uh, you know, uh, Tiffany glass, uh, beautiful woods, uh, really a splendid house. But she never stopped building it, and she got kind of random. Uh, you know, they'd say, well, there's nothing further we can do in this room. She said, well, build a stairway. And they say, but there's nothing above it to connect to. She says, I don't care. I want a stairway. So there are stairways that go up to a ceiling and proceed no further. There's doors in the floor. Uh, there's doors so high up on walls that if you stepped out, you'd die because there's no stairway outside the door or balcony or anything. Um, it's it's a crazy place. Uh, and the accepted story is that she had heard from a fortune teller that the ghosts of all the Indians who had been killed by Winchester rifles wanted revenge and were coming to get her. And she was told further that if you can keep constant hammering noise going on, it'll repel the ghosts. So she thought, okay, I'm just going to have carpenters 24 hours a day hammering nails, working drills, dropping things. And uh, apparently it worked um, because she died of old age without ghosts of Indians um, hassling her. Uh, Significant to the book... Uh, the earthquake, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 was caused by Dionysus, and it knocked down the third floor of Winchester's house, locking her, confining her, trapping her in her bedroom. And uh, she herself, it turns out, had been resisting the will of Dionysus um, because of a, a child of hers who who died, and Dionysus wanted to consume, absorb, welcome in the ghost of the child, and so it wasn't actually ghosts of Indians she was trying to keep at bay with her nonstop carpentry. It was actually the attention of Dionysus, who got back at her by knocking <laughs> down the third floor of her house. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all, all fictional stuff aside, that house is, uh, Alice in Wonderland Palace. It extends for acres and, and every corner you look at is gorgeous architecture, beautiful, you know, turn of the, turn of that century, um, carpentry and woodwork, um, really an astonishing place. That's cool. It sounds like also the sort of place that you, in particular, author Tim Powers, would walk into and and just uh, become yeah, inspired. Yeah, you walk through and you say, oh, weirdness. what's the story here? And they explain it. And then you say, no, no, what's the real story here? Come on, don't tell me it was Indian ghosts. What was really going on? Also, at the core of it, at the end of some hallway, you can, there's, that original little house is still there, now completely encased by, you know, vast architecture. But but way down in the middle, there is still that little original house. Speaking of weird magical artifacts, then, um, some of the things that we see in the book are the Bugsy Siegel eyeball is, <laughs> is really strange. How does that What's the purpose of that, and how does that? Um, it is true that Bugsy Siegel's eyeball was shot out of his head in 1946, uh, when, according to me, uh, Scott Crane's father took over the Fisher Kinghood, and um, 
since it's the eyeball of a one-time Fisher King, it has a kind of uh, emblem quality to it, it, an identity, a sort of psychic DNA to it. And so at one point when our characters need to dial a phone, which is one of the phones Edison claimed in real life to be about to invent, uh, with which you could talk to dead people, uh, they use Siegel's dried eyeball instead of a finger to rotate the dial um, because that is a uh, um, scrambler, in effect. It uh, conceals the identity of the person making the call because it's, it's, it's Bugsy Siegel's personality, DNA, making the call. And... Um, and after all, it is true. His eyeball was shot out of his head. I don't know where it went um, in real life, but uh, for the purposes of the book, um, my characters found it. They found it. So and there's also this pickup truck that turns red during Holy Week, I think. Is that... Uh, I just love the idea. I just idea love the it. idea of a truck that turns red. It's a blue truck that turns red one week of the year, which is um, it's it's associated with fish with Scott Crane. Yes, uh, it um, it's the uh, suburban truck that um, Crane went to Las Vegas in and. Uh, in 1990, and at one point, for purposes of disguise, he painted it red. And after that, at every during every Holy Week, it resumes that red color. Uh, and in earthquake weather, it resumes the red color, even though it's not Holy Week, according to the Catholic calendar. Um, what it is, Holy Week, of course, includes Good Friday. Uh, on which Christ died, and Holy Saturday, in which he was in the tomb, and Easter Sunday, in which he uh, rises from the dead. And so even though the events of earthquake weather are not in the official Holy Week, it's kind of a bastardized provisional Holy Week going on. And the truck accordingly, resumes its red paint. Clever bit, really, i got to say. Yeah, yeah, I, it's fun. And, and you use it in several ways. And so um, what the, one other thing that the way that you use, have archetypes, the idea of archetypes, uh, Jungian and otherwise, show up um, in clever little ways in the book is is marvelous um really love those mexican lotteria bingo cards um um yeah those of course are uh in real life i used for games um but i think it's true that just as you can do fortune telling with an ordinary deck of playing cards um, I believe they are also used um, for kind of ad hoc fortune telling. And so I decided, let's say they are used for real high octane psychic purposes. Um, I mean, in a way, they resemble tarot cards in that they are each card is a little picture that seems to imply a story that's not provided. You look at the pictures and you think, well, okay, what's going on here? And the answer is, well, it's just a picture. I think, yeah, but what's, what's, there's something going on here. Come on. And so for the purposes of the book, I said that, in fact, they are sort of a uh, knockoff uh, version of tarot cards. Um, with characters like, I mean, there's there's cards which are the sun, the moon, uh, El Borracho, the drunk, which corresponds fairly readily to the fool card in the conventional tarot deck. Um, yeah, actually, if you start looking at 
general popular culture with the kind of paranoid schizophrenic squint that I like to put on when I'm plotting a book, there's all kinds of uh, apparently innocuous things which, when you squint at them, imply big Jungian uh, connections. Uh, You know, something... Uh, they cast a bigger shadow than the size of them would lead you to believe. Yeah, and that somehow is is a supernatural influence on us. I mean, you've got basically some bunch of archetypes walking around, taking the forms, t- taking over humans and such. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in certain seasons, they can drift up from that subconscious water table to the surface and actually kind of bubble or spout up during certain sorts yeah. of Holy Week. And it's like, and Janice, like her conception of what her father did to her is that the son, it's sort of like the son arch- archetype is what's really split her apart more than just her father. It's this, this huge resonating, yeah. Yeah, her father had, uh, to some extent, assumed and, to some extent, convinced her that he had assumed the sort of sun-god figure. And even though she, uh, in trauma, blanked out the memory of her father physically falling on her, she has nightmares that the sun is falling out of the sky onto her. And that's her subconscious sort of trying to push the actual memory back up. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one other bit of reference that you, that we see a bunch in the in the book is references to uh, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Were you reading that at the time, and uh, or just felt it resonated? Well, I I, I asked my wife what story can you think of in which a dead person comes back to life? And she said, well, Tale of Two Cities. Um, The father of, um, I don't remember her name, the the, the woman protagonist, uh, was so uh, tortured and tormented during the French Revolution that he pretty much lost his memory and his identity. And uh, a subplot of the book is trying to restore who he used to be. And it's always referred to in terms of bringing him back to life, return to life, um, very resurrection uh, terms it's, uh, it's always handled in. And so it was a very natural parallel to um, use bits from that book as, you know, a chapter. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. The There's just, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. I don't want to give too much too much of the actual plot away, but uh, I think we've given a good, good, uh, good, presentation of what it is um so what what are you yeah it says i mean it's it's impossible to fully explicate a tim powers book because if you did then it would you would just have to write the book (laughs) or read the book so you have to write it (laughs) so what are you what are you working on at the moment uh, right now, I'm, as I say, more than halfway through, um, a sequel to Alternate Roots, uh, in which uh, the events of Alternate Roots have uh, left our protagonists, Sebastian Vickery and um, uh, Ingrid Castine, with, again, a kind of unwelcome, broadened field of perception. And um, it has to do with something Cecil B. DeMille did in 1923, 
when he was filming the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you just read an account of it in a biography of DeMille, you'll decide, well, he, he did that because of this here. But I asked myself, no, why did he really do it? What, what reason having to do with the supernatural might there have been for him to do that? And because he did that in 1923, it had uh, consequences in the 1960s, and those consequences are coming around again now in 2018. And Sebastian Vickery and Ingrid Castine uh, find themselves uh, vitally concerned in it. Well, they um, pretty much stopped um, a really evil version of purgatory from leaking into our world in alternate routes. So I, so I assume there, or something like that, dear God, I don't know what it would. There's another bad thing that's looking likely to happen if they don't uh, participate. And, of course, it's good. Yeah. it would be bad for them, too, personally, as well. Well, we're looking forward to that greatly. Um, but out now, out now at booksellers everywhere is "Earthquake Weather" by Tim Powers um, in a new beautiful trade paperback edition. It is a beautiful um, edition. So, Tim, thanks so much for talking with us about earthquake weather. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been fun as always. That was part two of an interview with Tim Powers discussing earthquake weather. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 13 Several weeks passed before anyone came to see him. There were a few sets of footsteps in the hall, heavy and armored. They stopped on the other side of the door. This is his cell, Lord Protector. It was about time. They wouldn't have sent a protector for anything other than dispensing judgment. Ashok was eager to meet his fate. There was nothing to do in prison but stare at the walls. He'd never been one for meditation, and he didn't particularly understand the concept of self-pity, so he couldn't even sink into a proper depression like so many other prisoners did. I must warn you, he's still got the sword. The guards hadn't even attempted to take Angruvedal from him. Word of Bidea's final party had reached the prison before he had. He'd respectfully asked to be directed to wherever he needed to wait for his judgment. The protector in the hall must not have cared that Ashok was armed, because the heavy door creaked open a bit. They didn't even bother to lock the cell, since there wasn't anything they could do to stop Ashok from leaving if he decided to. It was an unusual situation for everyone involved. For most of the prisoners, the guards would simply storm in, barking orders, and administer beatings to anyone who didn't get on his knees quick enough to suit them. 
But with Ashok, it was different. There was a polite, almost timid knock on the partially open door. Prisna, you have a visitor. And then the poor warrior got out of the way so the protector could enter. Leave us. Devadas. His old friend stood in the open doorway. Ashok sat cross-legged next to the far wall. One was in splendid armor, the other in blood-stained rags. A beam of sunlight from the single small window cut a dividing line between them. Devadas looked as if he'd been stabbed in the gut. Is it true? Ashok nodded slowly. Blinking rapidly, Devadas looked away. It can't be. It has to be a mistake. It isn't. I was born an untouchable. Ashok stood up to meet his fate. It wasn't fair. Devadas already had more blood on his hands than any one man should ever have to bear. He shouldn't have to execute his best friend as well. I knew they'd send someone, but I hoped it wouldn't be you. Nobody sent me. I'm here on my own. You've not come to pronounce judgment. I had to know. Ashok spread his hands apologetically. I'm sorry, brother. Don't call me that. Devadas suddenly roared. He took a step forward, fists clenched. How dare you call me brother? Spittle flew from his mouth as he shouted. Damn you, Ashok. After all we've been through, after everything we did for the order, for the law, how dare you? I only recently learned the truth. I never intended to deceive anyone. Ashok was shaking. Protectors were taught to avoid showing emotion, but tears rolled down his cheeks. You worthless whore-son fish-eater bastard. You were the best of us. I believed in you. We all did. You were mistaken. As was I. Who knew the truth then? Mindaran, Ratul, Bidea. Dead. Harter knew as well. All that remain are the wizard Kuhl and Arbiter Chavans. Ashok didn't know where they were, or if they were even still alive. They are beyond my reach. Not mine, Devadas vowed. I'll see to it they pay. Thank you. I don't want your thanks, Devadas snarled. I want you to have never existed. I want your name stricken from the records. I want all references to your deeds scrubbed from the world. You've mocked the law and brought shame to our entire order. For that I will pay, Ashok agreed. And I'll volunteer to be the one to swing the executioner's blade when the time comes, Devadas shouted. There was an unfamiliar pain inside Ashok's chest. For a moment he felt so weak that he thought the heart of the mountain had abandoned him. Very well. Devadas lowered his voice. What happens to Angruvadal? I don't know. All this time, you've thought you were better than me. I was deprived of my family's ancestor blade because of the sins of my father, but you, you're not even a real person. How did it pick you? That was a question Ashok had asked himself many times, even before he'd known the truth. They stared at each other. I am castless. Should I avert my eyes? But that didn't feel right either. I could prove which one of us is worthy once and for all. Devadas placed his hand on his sword. His feet shifted into a dueling stance. He seemed furious enough to try it. Don't. You unfeeling thing. Black-hearted Ashok with no more conscience than some wizard's automaton. I should cut you down and end this now. It was tempting to just lift his chin and expose his throat. All it would take was a moment's hesitation, and his scandalous existence would be purged from the world. No one would know 
that he'd accepted a dishonorable death. Except he'd know. And so would the sword. I may not be a whole man, but I still honor the law. My judgment hasn't been pronounced. This isn't an execution, it's a duel. If you draw your sword, as a bearer, I'm obligated to give my best. Offense has been taken. Devada stated the prerequisite terms for a legal duel. Offense has been given. There was no denying that fact. But remember what happened the last time we fought? Ashok warned. And Gruvedal found you wanting once. I was only a child then. So was I. The scar on Devadas's face was a constant reminder of what happened when jealousy overrode common sense. They'd come down from the mountain, brothers, until celebratory drink and poisonous envy had made Devadas think that he could claim another's family sword for his own. Ashok's love had overridden Angruvadal's desire to kill that day, but he knew it wouldn't be enough now. There was a subtle shift. Anger had been replaced by a focused intensity. Devadas was ready to draw and strike, and Gruvedal hung from Ashok's waist, and it was screaming at him to end this threat. Haven't I caused enough evil already? Ashok asked softly. Don't make me do this, too. The long silence was painful. Devadas slowly moved his hand away from his sword. The decision had been made, and the protector backed toward the open door. If I ever see you again, Ashok, I'll kill you. You have my word. Goodbye, Devadas. The cell door closed. His brother was gone. They called him unfeeling, remorseless, a black-hearted killer the likes of which the world had seldom known. But that wasn't entirely true. The wizard Kuhl may have shattered his mind, stolen fragments, and filled the gaping holes with lies, creating a parody of a rational, feeling, law-abiding man. But it would have been better if Kuhl had taken it all. Instead, He'd left behind emotions that Ashok could barely articulate and would never fully grasp. Ashok sank to the floor and wept. Months after bringing justice to Great House Vidal, something awoke Ashok in the middle of the night. He was lying on the pile of straw that served as his bed. At first he thought it must be the rats again, but the cell itself was dark and quiet. The noise was outside. A small bit of moonlight came through the iron bars of the small window until a shadow blocked it. Someone had climbed up the stones to his window. From the sound, they were unarmored and barefoot, so it wasn't one of the prison guards. No one else should have been on the grounds at night. Who has come to stare at the freak now? Ashok snapped. You are indeed most curious. I've never seen a prisoner with a sword before. What do you want? I've come to speak with you, Protector. I no longer hold that office. On the contrary, you are a Protector in the truest sense. It is in your nature. You've just been protecting the wrong thing. The stranger's manner of speech was odd. He was a Westerner probably from Utara or Harbin. But there was something else there as well, a sort of roughness to his pronunciation. He spoke well enough, but certainly wasn't of meaningful status. Who are you? I am Keita, the Keeper of Names, the stranger answered. That was an odd title. Of what house? I have no house. No house? It was possible he was obligated to an order that Ashok was unfamiliar with. The capital certainly had enough bureaucracies that it was impossible to keep track of them all. Of what caste? Free men of no caste. Free? This Keita was insane. 
The prison had a section for raving lunatics. One of them must have gotten loose. No one is allowed in the square after dark. The guards will punish you when they find you. No worries. I'm very good at not being found. Warning me like that, though, makes me curious. Do you still seek to enforce the law? Old habits die hard. That is no longer my place. What is your place? Kita asked. Good question. There had been no word yet about what was to be done with him. For now, my place is here, awaiting judgment. Aren't we all? Only you are thinking of the fallible judgment of man, and not the all-seeing judgment of the gods. There's no such thing as gods. Ashok wasn't in the mood to listen to the ramblings of a crazy person. You're treading dangerous ground, Keeper. Talk like that is grounds for execution. As you know, having personally executed so very many. What a terrible burden that must be. Do all of those deaths trouble you? Don't be so hard on yourself, Protector. Everyone has faith in something. You simply put your faith in the law instead of the gods. But now your wise judges don't have a clue what to do with you. You've caused quite the predicament. The lunatic had a gift for understatement. The Capitol would want him executed, and Vidal wouldn't want to risk the destruction of their sword. Eventually, the judges would come to a consensus, and until then, he would remain a voluntary prisoner. Ashok rolled over on his straw pile. I'm going back to sleep. But I've come all this way. Wouldn't you like me to answer your questions? What questions? Ashok asked, annoyed. The ones that Bedea couldn't answer that night. You asked for names, and I'm the one that knows them all. The castless of these lands prefer to give simple descriptive names. Your mother was called Addis, named after a type of flower because she was such a beautiful baby. Bedea had her suffocated. You didn't ask, but if you are curious, your father was called Smoke, named because his father was a cremator of bodies. He was sold to another house and died of sickness during the journey, only a year after you were born. Ashok leapt to his feet. How do you know of this? he demanded. The man was hanging from the bars. All that was visible of him were eyes and the whites of his teeth. As I said, I'm the keeper of names. It's my duty to know. Your parents named you after the season of your birth, because the day you were born was when the first leaves died and turned to gold. So, to answer your question, your castless name was Fall. Kita let go of the bars and dropped into the shadow. By the time Ashok reached the bars, the strange man was already gone. The prison grounds were completely devoid of life. To disappear like that, the Keeper of Names had either been a wizard or the remainder of a dream. Four. Shaking his head, Ashok returned to his bed of straw to continue his self-imposed exile. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the burnt-out ends of L.A. Ghost Haze from 1972, palm trees swaying in eerie rhythm against the snowy San Gabriels, and a giant rock that looks like the face of a startled child crossed with a lizard that fell on the road to Crestline yesterday morning at dawn, plus thanks and praise for Tim Powers, author of Earthquake Weather. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>